And I am not actually going to invite you to turn to Judges 2. That's where I intended to be this evening, but in God's providence, my family and I have been hammered pretty hard by illness, and it was all I could do to get one sermon prepared this week, let alone two. So, as I have done in the past when having to call an audible at the last minute, we are going to look at the book of Ruth. We have looked at Ruth 1, 2, and 3 over the past four years or so, whenever I've had to do this, and hey, now we get to Ruth chapter 4, which is actually quite fitting to help us read the book of Judges, because the story of Ruth takes place in the time of the Judges, and I would argue is actually the most important events that happened in the days of the Judges. So if you would turn to Ruth chapter 4, and I am going to pray for the Lord to help us understand this word and help me just keep breathing and not pass out. So let us call upon the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you that no matter where we turn in your word, whether it is where I thought we would be tonight or where we actually will be, no matter where we go in your word, we find great comfort and hope for every single word that has ever been written in your holy scriptures, points us to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is our hope. So I pray that as we look to you this evening, you would again give us hope, not in anything in this world, but in Christ alone. And I do pray for physical and mental strength to be able to speak clearly, that we might all have greater understanding. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this evening from Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. 
Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of, the, of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. In Romans chapter 15, the Apostle Paul says that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance... And through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And what Paul wrote to the Romans is still true for us. God has lovingly given you his word so that you might have hope. Do not think that the scriptures, either of the Old or the New Testaments, were just for people who lived a long time ago. No, God had them written down for your instruction and for your encouragement. And their usefulness for instruction and encouragement haven't faded with time. Their truth and power are as eternal and potent as the one from whom they were breathed, the everlasting and almighty God. He has spoken and he has preserved that spoken word so that you and I might have hope and endure. For as Jesus said, only the one who endures to the end will be saved. As we've been learning in Hebrews, we have to finish the race, but we won't keep running if we lose hope. Without hope, we will be like the seed that fell on the rocky ground that has no root in itself. And so it eventually falls away when tribulation and persecution come. And so you and I have to fight every day to maintain hope. Like David does as he writes Psalms 42 and 43. 
When you read those Psalms, you hear David fighting to maintain hope. Three times in those Psalms, David commands his heart, hope in God. And each time this command is a response to his self-imposed question. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? See, in the midst of sorrow and confusion, David is wrestling to gain a firm grip on hope as if his life depended on it. Because when you lose hope, you essentially lose life. To live without hope is like trying to swim in quicksand. The more you move, the further you sink. And eventually you just give up. Therefore, everyone is constantly searching for something to hope in, something solid to lay hold of and be pulled out to safer ground. And yet, when you try to lay hold of anything in this world, it's like trying to grip water. It's just going to seep through your fingers. Whether it's money, jobs, Relationships, accomplishments, emotions, pleasures, pastors, churches, they're all transient. They all come and they all go. If your hope is in something earthly, then at best it is uncertain. You may or may not get what you are hoping for. And even if you do, you cannot guarantee that you will have it for very long. Quite the contrary, your only guarantee is that you will eventually lose it in death, if not sooner. And so as you sit in your pew this evening, I ask you, do you have hope? And whether you answer that question yes or no, my next question is, in what or in whom have you placed your hope? For if it is in something other than God, you will live in perpetual fear of losing it. And one day you will lose it. David's command to his heart is therefore not simply, have hope, David. It's not what he says. He says, hope in God. Because he knows that all worldly hopes are a dead-end street. No matter where you turn, you will find that you have nowhere else to go. So my aim this evening is to direct you away from this world, to lift your gaze a little bit higher, and to show you where your heavenly hope lies. Because the book of Ruth is a story all about hope. And I pray that God will use it again tonight to strengthen your hope in him. So I'm just going to make three observations from the text and then offer three encouragements in light of those observations for you to place your hope in God and God alone. The first observation is that Boaz's work of redemption was in one sense a work of resurrection. If you've read through Ruth or when you heard me preach on Ruth 1 about three years ago, then you know that this story begins with God emptying Naomi of everything she has. 
He takes away her food. There's a famine in the land. He takes away her home. They have to leave Israel and go to Moab. While they're in Moab, he takes away her husband. And then he takes away her two sons. So at the end of chapter 1, Naomi feels absolutely bitter and hopeless. When she eventually returns to Bethlehem, she tells the women of Bethlehem not to call her Naomi because Naomi means pleasant, but they are now to call her Mara because Mara means bitter. And she is convinced that every moment of the rest of her days will be bitter emptiness. However, in chapters 2 and 3, God actually begins to fill and restore Naomi through the everyday faithfulness of her daughter-in-law, Ruth, and her relative, Boaz. Eventually, Naomi even comes up with a plan for Ruth to marry Boaz, who is what is called a kinsman redeemer. In ancient Israel, a kinsman redeemer was a relative who is responsible for the well-being of the entire greater family or clan so that land and wealth were not lost and so the family's name would always endure through offspring so at the end of chapter 3 Ruth proposes to Boaz and asks him to redeem all that belonged to Naomi's dead husband, Elimelech, and his two dead sons, Kilion and Malon. Boaz agrees to this, but he informs Ruth that there is a closer relative to Naomi who has the first right of redemption. Therefore, Boaz has to first ask this other relative if he wants to be the redeemer, and if he refuses, then Boaz says, I'll do it. So, in chapter 4, Boaz returns to the city and he sits down at the gate where official business took place. It was like the town hall and courthouse all wrapped up into one. When he speaks to the other relative explaining the situation, the other relative initially agrees to purchase Naomi's land. Thinks, well, this is a good deal. This is going to add to my wealth. But then Boaz adds this little detail. He says that the Redeemer also has to marry Ruth and raise up offspring through Ruth. Now this changes everything for the relative. The cost of buying the property, sustaining Naomi, and marrying Ruth is no longer financially prudent for him. If he's required to marry Ruth and provide an heir for Elimelech, then that child would eventually inherit everything that he's purchasing. Quite possibly, this potential child would also become entitled to part of his existing wealth, which would take away from the inheritance of any children he already has. Therefore, this other relative gives up his right to redemption and says, you go ahead and do it, Boaz. I don't want to get poorer out of this deal. So after confirming the deal by exchanging foot apparel, which is apparently what they did in those days, Boaz declares before the witnesses what he has done. He has bought all that belonged to Elimelech and Elimelech's two sons, which includes taking Ruth as his wife in order to perpetuate, and the Hebrew literally means to raise the name of the dead. And this is why I say Boaz's act of redemption is in one sense an act of resurrection. 
For an Israelite understanding, as one commentator explains, the loss of land and heirs amounted, amounted to personal annihilation. It was the greatest tragedy imaginable. It would be as if Elimelech and his sons never even existed. They would be cut off forever. So in a sense, Boaz and Ruth's offspring would raise Elimelech and his sons from the dead. They would be saved from having their names cut off forever. That's the first observation. The second observation is that Naomi's pleasant fullness at the end of the story far exceeds her bitter emptiness in the beginning of the story. As I mentioned, in the beginning of the story, Naomi loses everything. Her home, husband, sons, and therefore any apparent provision for the future. To be a childless widow in those days was to receive a death sentence. And she's bitter because as she says near the end of chapter 1, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. She recognizes that everything has happened, has happened at the hand of the Lord. She says, when I left, I had everything I wanted and needed. When I come back, it's all gone and the Lord took it from me. Now, in chapter 1, when I preached on that text, I observed that she most likely makes this declaration when Ruth is standing right next to her. The pain of her suffering had blinded her to one of the ways that God was already working to refill her. And this irony is not lost on the women of Bethlehem at the end of the story, which we'll soon see. But in chapter 4, verse 13, we read that Boaz now takes Ruth as his wife. He goes into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Now, this is only the second place in the entire story where the Lord is said to directly act. Everything else that he does, he's doing just through the everyday faithfulness of Ruth and Boaz and others. The first place was in chapter 1, verse 6, where the author tells us that the Lord ended the famine and he gave his people food again. The Lord made a way for food through famine, and now we see he is making a way for children through the barren womb of Ruth. For remember, Ruth had been married for 10 years without any children. But somewhat surprisingly, this son is considered Naomi's son as much as Ruth and Boaz's. In verse 16, the child is given to Naomi, and Naomi becomes his nurse. And speaking of the child, the women rejoice that the Lord has not left Naomi without a redeemer, one who will be a restorer of life and nourisher of her old age. So in the first chapter, Naomi tells the women of Bethlehem that the Lord is acting against her. In the last chapter, the women see and they tell Naomi that the Lord has actually been acting for her this entire time. They especially want to highlight how the Lord has blessed Naomi through Ruth. The Lord had taken a lot from Naomi, but he also gave Naomi Ruth. They rejoice in Ruth's great love for Naomi. 
And they remark that she has been more to Naomi than seven sons. Now, seven was the number for perfection, for completion. To have seven sons was a way to refer to the most complete, prosperous, secure family imaginable. Naomi had lost two sons. But they say, in Ruth, you gained a whole lot more. Ruth was a better gift than if God had given you a perfect family, Naomi. And so the story nears its conclusion with Naomi pleasantly filled as she holds baby Obed in her arms. The bitter night of emptiness had passed and she could now see the light of God's love that had never actually left her. But as the author knew, this was not quite the end of the story, which leads to my third observation. This story is much bigger than it first appears. As the final scene concludes, the author briefly zooms out to reveal a secret that he's been keeping the whole time. While this story has certainly been about God's work in the lives of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, it has also been about a whole lot more. This story was part of a much bigger story. Because this small baby boy born at the end would be the grandfather of King David. The man who would become Israel's greatest and most significant king. Now we begin to get a clue that something bigger is going on with the elder's prayer for Ruth and Boaz. In verses 11 and 12, after Boaz declares his purposes in redeeming all that belonged to Elimelech and his sons, the people at the gate offer a prayer for Boaz and Ruth. And in this prayer, they pray for three things, but I'm just going to mention two. First, they pray that the Lord would bless Ruth with fertility. But in particular, they pray that Ruth would be like Rachel and Leah, the two wives of the great patriarch Jacob. Now, this is a really big prayer because Rachel and Leah, along with their two maidservants, give birth to the 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. In addition, they also pray that God would make Boaz's house like the house of Perez, who is the son of Judah and Tamar. In Genesis 38, we read that Tamar, like Ruth, became a childless widow when God struck down her husband and Judah's son, Ur, for his wickedness. And then, because one of Ur's brothers refused to do what he was supposed to to raise up offspring, and the other brother was too young, Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute and sleeps with her father-in-law, Judah. She then becomes pregnant with twins, and one of those twins is Perez. And Perez and his descendants become one of the most prominent lines in the line of Judah. So in total, the crowd is praying for the Lord to bless Ruth and Boaz with a prosperity and prominence akin to some of the most significant ancestors in Israelite history. As I said, this is a really big prayer. And this prayer clues us into the fact that something much bigger is taking place. And this is confirmed when we read the concluding genealogy that ends with David. And now we begin to see this story in an entirely different light. As one commentator puts it, this genealogy links the events of the story with the line that would build the house of Israel more than any family since the time of Jacob, the line of David. 
So this isn't just a story about how God provided offspring and preserved a little family in Judah. It's a story about how God provided a much-needed king and preserved a nation that was in rapid decline. Remember what I said at the beginning. This story takes place in the days of the judges. We are going to learn over the next several months that the days of the judges are some of the darkest and most disturbing in all of Israel's history. In fact, one of the things that should keep coming to mind as you read through Judges is how on earth did there ever come to be a nation called Israel? It just goes from bad to worse. And one of the refrains that we'll hear in the final chapters of Judges is that there was no king in the land and everyone was just doing what was right in their own eyes. And so Israel needed a king. Here in Ruth, we see how God is providing one. But he didn't provide a king through the heroic exploits of Ehud or Deborah or Gideon or Samson. No, God provided the needed king through the everyday faithfulness of a Moabite widow and a faithful farmer. And they had no idea what God's ultimate plan was. They were a significant part of a much bigger story than they realized. So there are the three observations and here are just three encouragements in light of them to hope in God. Encouragement number one is hope in God because your God raises the dead. The first observation was that Boaz's act of redemption was in a sense an act of resurrection. By all appearances, Elimelech's name and line was doomed to be cut off forever. But Boaz's willingness to be a redeemer and raise up the name of the dead demonstrates God's commitment to redeeming and raising his people. For in the history of redemption, God sends redeemer after redeemer to deliver his people from destruction. Again and again, God shows his steadfast love and faithfulness by saving his people from certain annihilation. God has been and always will be committed to redeeming and raising his people. And for those of you who know the whole history of redemption told in the Bible, you know that all of those redeemers in the Old Testament were a type of the one true redeemer who would final, finally and fully come to redeem and raise God's people for all time. And that redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has delivered you from death. Your Redeemer fought death and won. Boaz could perpetuate the name of the dead, but he couldn't physically raise anybody from the dead. God, however, raised your Redeemer from the grave, and he has given him the power to raise all of his people up with him. When you have Christ, you don't lose anything. Everything that is good will be raised with you in the new heavens and the new earth. If you put your hope in the things of this world, you will lose it, for death will eventually take it from you. But if you put your hope in God, then not even death can take it from you, for God raises the dead. And consider the one that God sent to be your Redeemer. Remember, the redeemer that Boaz first approaches is unwilling to sacrifice his own wealth and inheritance to help out Ruth and Naomi. That's not like your redeemer. 
Your Redeemer, Jesus Christ, willingly emptied himself of everything, making himself nothing and giving up his, his life so that you and I could one day share in the entirety of his inheritance. And that life and inheritance can never be taken from you. For as Paul says in Colossians 3, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Who can steal that? So, dear Christian, you are never hopeless if your hope is in God, even when you feel hopeless. Your hope is not a subjective feeling. It's an objective person. And when Christ is your hope, it is eternally secure. The reality and security of your hope doesn't waver with your feelings of hopelessness. Whether you are feeling sky high or like you are in the pit of despair, your hope remains real and secure. For no one can take Christ from you, and your hope can never die. It is a living hope, as Peter says. Peter writes, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be, re be revealed in the last time. When you begin to feel hopeless, I want you to memorize those verses in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5. For brothers and sisters, if your hope is in God, it is imperishable. It is eternally secure. You are not safeguarding it by your strength. God is safeguarding it by his strength. Therefore, not even death can take it from you, for your God raises the dead. Second encouragement to hope in God. Hope in God because God's plan is far better than your plan. We all make plans. We all have dreams, and we all want things to go according to those plans and dreams. I had a plan for this week. Didn't work out. The trouble is they rarely do all go to our, according to our plans and dreams. There can be minor disrupt disruptions to our weekly and daily plans. We might hit construction on our way to work or get a flat tire. Our kids might slow us down of getting out the door. We might get sick. There can also be major disruptions like a scary medical diagnosis, chronic illness, Infidelity and divorce, a lost job, a lost loved one, unyielding depression, suffocating anxiety. In a 10-year span, Naomi didn't face minor disruptions. She faced major disruption after major disruption. Nothing went according to her plan. Therefore, according to Naomi, God was against her and there was no hope for the future. But it was not that God was against Naomi. It was just that God's plan was different than Naomi's. And while it was a much more painful plan than Naomi would have liked, it was by far a much better plan. You see, our plans often are aiming far too low. The joys and pleasures we seek are too shallow and transient. And our plans only go as far as five feet down the road because that's as far as we can see. 
Our desires are too weak and our perspective is too limited. But God doesn't suffer from our natural or sinful deficiencies. He's aiming for something much higher. He's working for a good and joy that are much deeper and fuller. And he knows and sees all things. And therefore, at times, he ordains famines in our lives because he knows it will be the pathway to greater feasting. He breaks us because he knows his healing will lead to greater health. He slays us because he's not working to give you 5, 10, or 70 years of pleasure on this earth. He's working to give you pleasures forevermore at his right hand. Sin has brought pain into the world. But God has made that pain the path to the fullness of joy in his eternal presence. You and I would not have planned a salvation that included a cross. Because we seek to avoid pain at all costs. And so... Our plans would have failed to bring us life. God, however, ordained the pain and death of the cross because he knew it was the only way that he could justly heal and raise his people. God's plans may hurt more than your plans, but they will also bring you an eternal weight of glory if you trust in him. And so you must learn to trust that every detour, every setback that confuses and troubles you is not leading you to a dead end. It is actually the course God has plotted to bring you into his eternal joy. God's plans are much better than yours because he knows a lot more than you do. And he's actually more good than you are. His plans are, are also much bigger. And that leads to the third and final encouragement. Encouragement three is hope in God because you are a significant part of a much bigger story. Something much bigger was at stake in this story than Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz ever realized. God was using their everyday faithfulness to produce Israel's much-needed king. With all of the astounding things happening in the days of the judges, God was doing his most significant work through the lives of a hopeless widow, a barren Moabite widow, and a faithful farmer. They didn't know what was at stake. They were insignificant by all worldly standards. And yet their lives were greatly significant. Their faithfulness mattered. They were part of God's redemptive plan. And if you know the story of the Bible, then you know that this story was even bigger than the author of Ruth realized when he wrote this. For we find this genealogy appear again, not in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 1, Boaz and Ruth are once again mentioned as the parents of Obed, who was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David the king. But in Matthew 1, this is not where the genealogy ends. It continues until we come to a man named Joseph, who married a girl named Mary, who gave birth to a baby boy named Jesus the Christ. The faithfulness of Ruth and Boaz didn't just lead to offspring for Naomi, who would be her redeemer and restorer of life. Their faithfulness led to another offspring, one who would be the redeemer and restorer of life for the whole world. 
their faithfulness did not just lead to a much-needed king for Israel. It led to a much-needed king for the world, the one who is the king of all kings and lord of all lords. God was using Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz to bring about his promise to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15 that he would provide an offspring who would crush the serpent's head. God was using Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz to keep his promise to Abraham in Genesis 12.3 that through Abraham and his offspring all the families of the earth would be blessed. Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz were a significant part of a really big story. And so are you. God is still accomplishing his redemptive purposes through the everyday faithfulness of his weak and frail people. One thing that can cause you to lose hope is when you believe that your life and your suffering are insignificant. But your life is not insignificant. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. See, God is always delighted to place his treasure in frail jars of clay like you and like me. And so you and I matter because God made us, he saved us, and he's choosing to use us for his good purposes. You are significant and what you do every day, whether you're at home with kids or out at work, everything you're doing in obedience to the Lord is eternally significant. As John Piper once said, for the Christian, there is always a connection between the ordinary events of life and the stupendous work of God in history. Everything we do in obedience to God, no matter how small, is significant. It is part of a cosmic mosaic which God is painting to display the greatness of his power and wisdom to the world and to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. So perhaps... Your suffering and your pain is about something much bigger than just you. Maybe what you are going through is not only for your own sanctification and good, which it is, but it is also for the sanctification and good and maybe just the salvation of someone else. Perhaps God is using you to show forth his glory and goodness so that as you hope in God, so will everyone who sees you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for preserving this story about Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz so that we can find encouragement and hope to endure. I pray that as we go into another week and it feels like what we do doesn't really matter, Pray that we would remember this story and know that everything that we do as we walk in faithfulness to you matters. Help us to hope in you and nothing else so that no matter what you give us or take from us this coming week, we remain secure in Christ. Oh Lord, you are so good and gracious to us. So 
Give us grace to endure and help us know that you know better than we do and your plans are much better than our plans. So help us to make good plans this week, but to hold them loosely and ultimately trust to your perfect plan. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.